Friends, of all the callings and all the invitations that we can get and hear, the greatest invitation, the greatest invitation is the invitation which God, our Maker, makes towards sinners to come to Him. Recognizing that we are poor, we are needy, as the song says, we are weak and wounded, we are sick and sore, and yet Jesus stands ready to save all those who would come to him. This morning, the message that God has for our hearts is a message that may seem very, very basic to many of us this morning. It might feel like one of those messages that you have the impression you've heard it so many times, you know it, there's nothing new in this message, especially if you have grown up in church for a while. And yet there's times, dear friends, in which going back to the basics is so helpful. Uh, this morning I was reminded of, of that those experiences when you just want to get something that you know is good, that you've had many, many times, like a food that is very tasty, and you've had it so many times, and you want to have it again. And I know it's, it's Super Bowl Sunday today, and, and some of you are looking forward to it, and you may wonder, what will you order while you look at the game? And you're probably going to order pizza, because you know what you're getting. It's the thing you've had thousands of times before, and you're going to have it again tonight. In some ways, getting the message that you know you've heard multiple times, it, you, you could say it yourself. You might, it feels that way, that message of basic comfort, going back to the roots, going back to what we know. And as Christians, there's no more basic message that we need to hear than we need to have refreshed that we need for our comforts, that we need to take refuge in, than this message, there is no other God. There's no other God. So this morning, I invite you to open God's Word to the book of Isaiah, chapter 45, as we will read God's Word. If you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, you may find this passage on the Pew Bibles, uh, on the Pew Bibles that are provided in the chair in front of you, you may find this on page number 605. We encourage you to open God's Word and follow along the reading so that we may hear from the Lord and so that you may understand that what I'm here to proclaim is not my Word, it's God's Word. This is God's Word for our hearts this morning. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings to open doors before him that gates may not be closed, I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there's no other besides me. There's no God. I equip you, 
though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open, that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or your work has no handles? Woe to him who says to a father, What are you begetting? Or to a woman, With what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you and shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, Seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that, that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue 
shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Amen. And this is the word of the Lord for our hearts. Would you bow your heads in prayer, asking the Lord to bless the preaching of his word. Lord, you alone are God. And you have declared this truth to your people and to the nations that we might come to know you as the only true God. Oh, Father, would you speak to your hearts, to our hearts this morning, to the hearts of your people gathered in your name. We pray this for your glory and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Friends, in the previous chapters, we have seen how the Lord has been building a case that he alone is God. And there's no other God besides him. Now, how... How did God begin building this case that there is no other God besides him? Well, he shows that by the fact that he has decreed ahead of time what he plans to do. And what God planned to do in the book of Isaiah is to rescue his people from the Babylonian exile. God reveals to his people his plans before they take place. In the text we just read, we see one of the most detailed descriptions of how God plans to give his people back their land and to rebuild their city. God not only tells his people that he will bring them back from the Babylonian exile, but he tells them the name of the pagan king that God was going to raise up, the king who would free God's people from their exile. And this king's name was Cyrus. Now, the fact that we have such detailed description and explicit references to King Cyrus has led many scholars to conclude that this portion of Isaiah, from chapter 40 on, could not be written by Isaiah because Isaiah wrote this about 150 years before King Cyrus. So scholars who do not believe that God could predict the future, that God could determine the future, scholars who don't believe that God has those kind of miraculous powers, the conclusion they draw is that this part of Isaiah could not have been written by Isaiah. It had to be written after King Cyrus rose to power. For no one could come up with such detailed description 150 years before such things were to happen. And yet, this is one of the proofs that God calls and brings forth as evidence that He is the one and true God, that He is the only God. Namely, that He determines the future, that He tells His people ahead of time what will happen. And throughout the Bible, we see instances of predictive prophecy in which God tells his people ahead of time what he plans to do. And many of those prophecies, my dear friends, have already been fulfilled, particularly in the life of our Savior and the Son of God, Jesus Christ. In this text that we are looking at today, God declares ahead of time the details of how he will restore his people. 
as God reveals these details, there is a refrain. And as we read this passage, I wonder if you picked up on a phrase that repeated over and over and over again. And the refrain is this, there is no other God beside God. Hence the title this morning of my sermon is No Other God. No Other God. How does this message unfold this uh, how does this text unfold this message of no other God? Well, we'll see four points as uh, Isaiah shows how God makes his case. What God does as he proves to his people that there is no other God. The first point is that God's, er- that God's power is beyond our expectations. God's power is beyond our expectations. In the previous chapter, chapter 44, God exposed the foolishness of idolatry. But God didn't stop merely at showing the foolishness of idolatry or showing us that idolatry is dangerous. God shows us not only do not do this, God shows us the alternative. Instead of idols, here is what we should worship. The true God presents the alternative himself as the alternative to consider God as the only true God. In chapter 44, If we look just briefly at the passage we read, God begins a description of himself. It starts with verse 24. And he begins describing himself from verse 24 to verse 28. These verses are one long sentence. They are actually the longest sentence in the entire Bible. And they include 14 who statements. The God who, blank, and There's 14 things. You can go home and and read on your own later. 14 statements that that God uses to describe what he has done, what he is able to do, and what he plans to do. The last few descriptions of this this long list of who statements uh, are descriptions that God makes about rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, which the king of Babylon was going to destroy when he had uh, planned to exile God's people. Now, hearing such plans of restoration, of of rebuilding, made God's people excited. It was great news that God would predict ahead of time both the exile, but also the restoration. It was a way in which God told his people, Hey, I'm, I'm taking you into exile because you have sinned against me. But that exile will be temporary. It's not going to last forever. That was great news. How would God show his own people that there's no other God besides him? By showing them and proving them that he's able to get them out, to rescue them out of, out of exile. Friends, historians say that, that the people of Israel are the only ones who were able to get out of exile. Nations, once they're exiled, once they are subdued, don't come back anymore. And the story of the, of the nation of Israel being able to be freed from the Babylonian exile is a proof that God is able to rescue his people. By rescuing them out of the Babylonian exile and by telling them ahead of time how he will do it, God proves to them he is a real God. He is powerful. He is powerful beyond what they might expect. But there's a strange detail that God introduces in his rescue plan. The strange detail appears already in chapter 44, verse 28. 
Not only that God says that Jerusalem will be rebuilt, but God says that he's speaking of Cyrus as he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purposes. And the strangeness of, of this description of Cyrus as God's shepherd is continued in chapter 45 in verse 1 where God describes Cyrus or Cyrus is described as God's anointed. Now in the Hebrew language, the word for anointed is Messiah. And the Greek translation of that word in the, in the Greek version of the Old Testament is Christos. Now imagine hearing God describe a pagan king as my Messiah, Messiah, or as my Christ. Using such language for a pagan king, for a king of Persia, was outside of any expectations and any any hopes that the people of God had. These titles were used only for the kings of Israel, for God's promised king that God promised to raise out of the house of David. And now God uses them for a pagan king. (laughs) These titles were enough to cause a scandalous reaction from any Jewish person. And yet, if this was not enough, there's more to this scandalous plan. Um, God promises that he will go before Cyrus uh, so that when Cyrus will be conquering nations, we are told, actually, it is God who will be working through Cyrus. In verse 3, in chapter 45, verse 3, God says, I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes of sec- in secret places. In other words, God was planning to make King Cyrus very successful and very resourceful. Now, why would God act this way? In our own text, God tells us explicitly what his purpose is. Notice two purpose statements that show up in verse 4 and then in verse 6. In verse 4, God says that he is doing it for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen. I call you by name. In other words, God raised up this world leader who had nothing to do with God, who did not know God, yet God raised him up for the sake of his own people. Sometimes, my dear friends, we may feel that if God's people run out of resources, if their strength, if our strength is ruined, if our potential is gone, as was the case with the exiles in Babylon, that there would be no more hope left. And humanly speaking, that would be true. But this story, this event in God's book, shows us, speaks volumes against this kind of hopelessness. That no situation is too hopeless for God to handle for the sake of his people. No situation. God was able to raise up an entire pagan empire, the Persian Empire, in order to do well for his own people. God is able to stir up the heart of a pagan king to accomplish God's purposes for his own people. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Even though God has taken his people into exile because of their sin, this text reveals that God has not forgotten his people. Quite the opposite, God is willing to change the destiny of nations, of entire empires, for the sake of restoring his own people. But there's a second aim here. There's a second aim behind 
God's plan to raise up Cyrus. The second aim is shown in verse 6. Look at verse 6. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. Another translation of this verse says, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know that there is none besides me. Oh, friends, this is why God raised up Cyrus. God's aim was to make his name known as the only true God and that there is no other God besides him. Friends, from the book of Genesis, from the beginning of the Bible, from the beginning of the book of Genesis, when God called Abraham in Genesis 12 to form a people for God, God's intention was never to be limited only to one nation, the Jewish nation, but that through that nation, God aimed to affect all the nations of the world and to bring all the nations to God. God's people, Israel, had a special calling among the nations to display the character of God. But they have failed. They have failed miserably because they chose to disobey God. They chose instead to turn to the idols of the very nations they were called to witness to. Yet despite their disobedience, God was still able to make a great name for himself. And this time, God was able to make a great name for himself even while his people were in exile. Friends, God is able to make a great name for himself even when his people are suffering. Even when his people are going through calamity. God is never out of solutions. Even when God's people have been unfaithful, God has a way to magnify his great name. God's ultimate motivation was to raise Cyrus, not just to release his people back to their land, but it was to prove that God was the only true God. Friend, how does this motivation, how does this aim challenge us? Sometimes people wonder today, what purpose does God have with my life? Things seem to go in a way that I don't like it. Things seem to go in a way that I don't know. I'm clueless. I don't know which way I should pursue. Now, it's true that that the Bible doesn't give us detailed step-by-step instructions of what we should do this week or next month. But, But God gives us a very clear direction of what God aims for his people to be and do. And that is to be, a, to be an agent, to be a people that display to the nations that God is the only true God. The Bible gives us this very clear direction that God's aim is so that all the ends of the earth will come to know that there is none, no other God besides him. How is your life contributing to this grand purpose that God has? As you think about a job you might be thinking about pursuing or a career that you're deciding about or perhaps considering to rechange your direction in life, how are you considering this grand purpose that God's aim is to make his name known among the nations as being the one and only true God? God declares again in verse 6, I am the Lord. There's no other. This phrase shows up in our passage in this text six times. I'll let you find out where they show up. Six times in this chapter, this phrase shows up, I am the Lord. There's no other. God proves to be God not only by 
raising up Cyrus, but also by declaring that he is the creator of all things. He says in verse 7, I form the light, I create darkness, I make well-being, and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Dear friends, even the crisis events that we go through, or the difficult circumstances that God allows for us to experience, He not only allows them, but He is behind them. They all come from the hand of God. The calamities God brings us allow us to see that the idols we make for ourselves cannot protect us. The idols of health, the idols of living life, our own self-centered pursuits, the idols of material comforts, God can bring us calamity to show us that life is ultimately not about ourselves. It's not about our idols. It's about the God who made us. For the Jewish people in exile, they needed to hear that even the exile was God's work. After God concludes describing himself and his plans with King Cyrus, we see God address the heavens and the earth. And he says in verse 8, Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. God makes his salvation known. And he makes his salvation and righteousness grow up upon the face of the earth. Nothing in this creation will stop God's salvation and God's righteousness. Now, what God planned with King Cyrus for the exiles of Israel was only a foreshadowing of a greater salvation that God was planning to work for the entire creation. God gives us here a picture that a time will come when all creation will be display of God's righteousness, of His salvation. The fruit of God's righteousness and the fruit of of God's salvation will be visible in every part of creation. Friends, we are not there yet. If you look around us, there's so many corners. There's so many places around us where God's salvation and righteousness is still lacking, wanting. God wants, though, every part of this creation to bear that fruit, and one day it will. How? When His Son, Jesus Christ, will return a second time and bring about, will crush all evil forces and bring about His judgment. Friends, until that day comes, until that day arrives, we are called to seek God as a Savior. Because He and He alone is the only true God. Notice again how God's salvation and how His righteousness grow at God's command. At His word, the heavens and the earth will respond. I wonder if at, at His word, you and I, His creation, will respond. If God's aim is that all the earth would bear fruit, of righteousness and salvation, do we, do our lives show the same purpose? Ask yourself, are there areas in your life in which you are not bearing the fruit of righteousness and of salvation that God wants for us to bear? He is the one who brings about this fruit, but He wants that fruit to be growing in every corner of His creation. And that begins with you and I. That's why, dear friends, Part of what we do as a congregation, part of what we do as a church is to be a place where the fruits of God's righteousness, the fruits of God's salvation are visible and manifested. 
God chose to be the only God by having plans that are often beyond our expectations. Sometimes they're very positive. Other times they're negative. While the plans with Cyrus uh, were great to hear, or the plans about God's restoration were great to hear, they sounded wonderful for any Jewish person. As soon as they heard the word Cyrus, it was like spoiling the news. How would God do such magnificent work through a pagan king who was an idolater himself? It just The Jewish mind could not comprehend that. So the second point we see in, in, in our passage is that God confronts the arrogant disputer. God confronts the arrogant disputer. Have you ever been in situations when you don't like God's plans? Or you may like the ultimate destination, but you don't like the way he gets there. Perhaps you might be in that season right now. Or perhaps you remember situations in your life when you have been in that season. It's easy in such circumstances to, to be mad at the Lord, to be angry with him, to ask why, how dare he do it to you. God knows that some of the people who heard about his plans about raising up Cyrus would begin grumbling against God. So starting in verse 9, God is giving a few illustrations to address those who would argue back at God. The illustrations are about a pot and its pot maker, its maker, and about children and their parents. Look at verse 9. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Now, take a moment, just absorb, absorb this illustration. Imagine a pot without handles, complaining to the pot maker. Why the pot doesn't have handles? The pot maker chooses to make a pot according to how he wishes it to make it, according to how he wishes to use that pot. If a pot maker, if a potter decides that he needs a pot without handles, he'll make one without handles. And the pot has no right to ask, why don't I have a handle? It's silly, right? And that's the point. It's silly. Or imagine, let's make it more personal, that a child speaks to his father asking, what are you begetting? Or to the mother, what, what are you giving birth to? It's, it's foolish. It's not just foolish, it's, it's dangerous. And this is what God is pointing out. It's not just impolite to ask of your maker, what are you making? It's dangerous. Notice God says, woe to him who disputes with his maker. Woe. It's not just impolite. It's not just inappropriate. It's not just disrespectful. It's dangerous. Woe to him who disputes with his maker. If we understand that God created the heavens and the earth, that we are his creation, it is not only foolish to complain against him, it is dangerous. In both illustrations, God points out the danger of disputing against him. Friends, we need to be cautious. We need to be cautious not to put God in our own box, expecting God, the maker, our maker, to conform with our plans and our wishes. Now, of course, it's okay for us to, to feel sad or feel sorry 
or not like the plants that God makes, but, but don't, don't dispute with him. Don't, don't go get bad to him, being angry at him or mad at him or bitter against him. There are people who are angry about how God does things. They don't like God's plans and are mad at God. Some are mad against God because of circumstances they've experienced. They blame God for allowing them to happen. Others are mad at God for his laws. Others despise God's word. Others are mad at God for saying that God will judge them. God's answer to our arrogant disputes against him is his reminder that God is the creator. Look at verse 12. I made the earth. I created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. Friends, when we come to God with an arrogant heart, seeking to dispute him or to dispute his plans, we forget that God is the one who made us. In that moment, we forget that there's only one God and there is no other. We want to take the place of God in that moment. We act on the premise that we know better than our maker. And such an attitude is not only foolish, but dangerous. Friends, is there an area in your life in which you come to God with an arrogant heart, wanting to dispute his plans? Be cautious. Be warned. The third point that we see in this passage is that God will show himself in his people. The third point we see that God will show himself in his people. The people to whom Isaiah writes these words were going to experience the exile, bondage, enslavement. The hopes of such people would be to return back home, if they could just get back home. But here is, as this chapter uh, uh, develops, God describes the future of his people as more glorious than merely returning home. Notice what God promises in verse 14. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God beside him. Do you see what God is saying here? Not only that God's people will be returning back to their place, but God promises that the nations will come and pay homage to God's people, that the nations will be submitted to God's people. Now, we should not think here that somehow this is, just, this is a physical promise talking about military submission. This is not about Israel having military power over the other nations. This is not what that, this is talking about. It's a picture of the spiritual submission that the nations will come to recognize not the supremacy of Israel. Oh, no. The nations will come to recognize the supremacy of God, who is in the midst of his people. This is not about maintaining nationalistic hopes for Israel. This is maintaining the glory of God, that God had desired for all the nations to come to know that he alone is God. Here we see a picture that the nations will come to God's people to exhibit and to prove, to see that God indeed alone is a true God and He is in the midst of His people. Are the people of God a proof that God is real? Are the people of God a proof that God is real? 
Friend, what would need to happen with God's people? Such that the nations would come to see that God is the only true Savior. Reality is that today many people do not see God in the midst of His people. Sometimes it's because of God's people. They don't live God's salvation and God's righteousness the way God has given it to them. We would prefer our own way rather than God's way, even as God's people. Friends, as a church, this is one of the mandates we have from the Lord, to be a people that shows that God is in our midst, that we reflect His character, that we reflect His nature, and that by our lives together, we are an evidence that God has rescued us from sin and from darkness. I wonder, how are we doing as a church to be a proof that God is real and that God is in our midst and that there is no other God but God. Other times, even if God's people live out God's character and nature, the world still fails to see God in the midst of His people because God is not visible to our natural sight. In verse 15, God says, or or the prophet says about God, truly you are a God who hides Himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. We should not conclude from this passage that God intentionally hides himself um, as a way to make himself more difficult to be found. Rather, unlike the idol makers in ancient times who made visible images for God, visible representations for God, God made it very clear that he does not want to have a physical, visible manifestation of him. In that sense, God gave the impression that he is a hidden God because he is not visibly manifested through the, the various statues that idol makers were used in those times. There are times when it feels like God's presence is hidden from us, isn't it? We may not understand why God works in a particular way, and we might feel that God is hidden. The present circumstances make no sense, so in such times, we feel like God is far away. Sometimes we crave for some visible proof of God's existence, but we cannot control God. When we try to put Him in our own box, we will be put to shame. God's existence and manifestation is often missed by people who are looking only for visible or tangible evidences. Jesus made a similar point when He pointed out that the kingdom of God is invisible to our natural eyes. Jesus said it's like a treasure hidden in a field. It's like a yeast in a flower. You don't see it at first, not with our natural eyes. But when God opens our eyes to see the kingdom, it changes everything. When we turn away from our idols and search for God, oh, what great promises God gives us. God offers His salvation. And He offers it to His people. And He showed it to His people. Friends, God offered His salvation not only to His people, but to all the nations. And this is the final point that we see in this passage. God invites all the earth to be saved. God invites all the earth to be saved. In verse 20, God assembles all the survivors of the nations to assemble together. Now these survivors are the survivors of the nations that that King Cyrus was was going to, to destroy. The survivors in, the, in these nations are now gathered by the Lord. And the Lord calls them. Why is He calling them? 
Well, he's calling them to present their proof that their idols are worth their worship. These, these survivors have just been shown that, that their, their gods cannot save them, that their gods cannot protect them, that their gods could not predict these plans. None of the idols were able to, to predict or to protect their worshipers. And God's invitation to these survivors is to gather together and to hear what the Lord has to say. Look at verse 22. Here's what the Lord has to say to them. Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. This is the message the Lord would want all the ends of the earth to hear. Turn to me. The destruction the, the proof that idols cannot protect us, that our idols cannot predict the future, cannot tell us what will happen. All these are proofs that, that, that idol worship will eventually end in shame, in destruction. And the nations deserve that. And yet God in His gracious, compassionate heart is calling the very nations who have worshipped after idols, who have experienced the destruction of their lives, God is calling these nations and he tells them, turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. It is this verse that God used to bring to himself a young boy in England in the 1800s. And God called this young boy to be a preacher of the same word, the gospel. And this young boy became a young man and submitted his life to the Lord. And the Lord used him to preach to the thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Charles Spurgeon was converted through hearing this verse. Call him. Oh, dear friend, if you're here this morning and you have heard God's word, no matter what, what your experiences have been, if you have experienced the destruction of idolatry, the, the futile nature of worshiping false idols, of pursuing your own self, your own selfish desires, your own self-centered ways, the salvation that God offers is by turning our lives to Him. The only way we can be saved is by turning to the Lord. If you'd like to know more what that looks like, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. I'd encourage you to talk to a, to a Christian, to a member in our congregation. But don't leave this place without heeding, without responding to this invitation that the God of heaven and earth, the one who made us, is giving to all the nations, to all the peoples of the earth. Oh, friends, this turn means turn away from idols, forsaking to live our lives based on our own wisdom, based on our own religious ways, based on our own traditions, based on our own self-centered ways. Friends, God alone is the one who is able to offer an eternal salvation. Other religious paths, other idols may promise us comfort, may promise us security, but their promises are empty. God says there's no other God besides Him. Would you turn to Him and be saved? I love what one pastor once said, to know God as Savior is the only way to be found 
righteous. And God assures us that his word will not fail. God says in verse 23, I by myself, I have not, I have not sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. What is the word that God says will go out from my mouth without returning? Here's the word. To me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. God says that he is putting forth a word that will not return empty. That God, to God, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. I love how someone put it. People everywhere have been put on notice. One day they will all have to bow the knee to the Lord and confess the truth about him. But hear the words of Spurgeon. It is true that there are two ways in which men shall be made to bow the knee before God. Some of them will bow unwillingly when they shall feel the weight of his iron rod. Others shall bow joyfully before him when they shall feel the power of his grace. Friends, I wonder, I wonder how you will bow the knee before him on that day. If you wait to respond to him until that day, you will experience shame. Because those who continue to ignore God, to continue the one who made them, will one day bow their knee. But it will be in shame. And yet those who bow their knee now, before that day comes, will experience a bowing in joy. I pray, I pray, dear friends, that we as God's people will be clear about who this God is, that we will make him known, that we would invite the nations to come and know God as the only true God. He has placed the day when he will bring all mankind to judgment. This chapter ends by making some practical applications for God's people of what it means for them to cling to God as the only true God. In verses 24 and 25, God's people will find their righteousness only in the Lord. Their right standing with God is found not by their own efforts, not in what they have done, but in what God alone has done to make them righteous. They will find their strength not in themselves, not in their strategies, not in their resources, but in the Lord. They will seek to live not in their strength, but in what the Lord provides. And they will find their justification, their forgiveness, not based on their efforts, but based on what God has done for them. And later in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah will show us how is it that God will justify the sinners. But God is the one who justifies sinners, not because of what sinners do, but because of what God does. And finally, God's people will glory only in the Lord. Their ultimate joy, the ultimate joy of God's people, of those who know that God is the only true God and there is no other, is that they will glory only in the Lord. I pray, my dear friends, that as we respond to the Lord, as we seek to worship Him as the only true God, whether you've, you've responded to the Lord many years ago, or whether you're responding today, that the Lord would be our righteousness, that the Lord would be our strength, that the Lord would be our justification, and the Lord will be our only glory in which we find delight. Let's pray.
You have reminded us, O Lord, of a very basic message, a very true message, a very needed message for us, that you alone are the only true God, and there is none other besides you. Would you forgive your people when in our own hearts, in our attitudes, in our thoughts, in our ways, we have turned to other idols to pursue you, more, to pursue them more than you. Forgive us, O Lord. Cleanse us. And enable us to have hearts that are fully secure, fully submissive, fully joyful in what you have provided for your people. Help us to see that you alone are the only true God, and you alone are worthy of our worship, of our adoration, and our submission and love. Pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's.